In 2013, the movement began on social media after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death of African-American teenager Trayvon Martin. And then in 2014, following the protests and unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, after the death of African-American teenager Michael Brown, Black Lives Matter gained national and international attention as a movement. In 2014, another movement began. It began after two of New York City's finest were ambushed and shot and killed in their patrol car in Brooklyn, New York. And the movement began, Blue Lives Matter. And then perhaps in response to the Black and the Blue Lives Matter movements, there was the attempt at All Lives Matter. I think I'm beginning to understand what people are trying to do with all the Black and the Blue and the All Lives Matter movements. But... I don't mean to sound controversial or offensive or even political by any means. That's not my goal. I think that my goal and my purpose as a pastor is not not to be concerned about being politically correct, but my main goal and purpose is to strive toward being biblically correct. And so... All political correctness aside, all racial and social and economic divisions aside, not because they are not important, they certainly are, but I believe that there is something more foundational, more basic, more elementary that we actually need to understand. And Jesus says it, that love matters. There was an expert who one day, he he was an expert in the religious laws and traditions of Israel. And he came to Jesus and he asked him a question. Of all the commandments, in other words, of all the 613 laws about political and racial and social and economic issues, what's the most important? And Jesus replied, In Mark chapter 12, verse 29. And in his reply, he actually does what's called a conflation. He brings two scriptures from different parts of the Bible together to make his point. He pulls from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 and Leviticus 19, 11. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love matters. Love matters most. And until we understand that love matters and love matters most, we will continually be drowning in the madness 
and chaos of racial and political and economic and social issues. Love matters. Today we're beginning a brand new sermon series, a short three-week sermon series called Love Matters. In this sermon series, we're exploring the matters of love and how love matters. Each week, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what it means to love God and then what it means to love others and then love who we are. Today, we're going to focus exclusively on what it means to love God with everything. We're going to ask that question. What does it mean to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? How how does that come about? And I'll tell you what, today we're going deep. We're going to places where we've never been before, to uncharted waters. We're going to the song of songs. That's right. The sex book. But before we go, we need some guidance from God. So I invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, and we'll read our memory verse. And and I want us to read this together, because there's power in this. We stand here at Journey of the Church to revere the Word of God and its transforming, life-changing power. So here we go in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. You can read it on the screen. Love the Lord your God. Wait, wait, wait. We did say together, right? Together, Valentine's Day. We do everything together, right? All right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So God, we come before you today and we ask, what does it mean to love you? We believe that you have loved us. So much, Lord. You have loved us in an intimate way. You have loved us in a way that we could never even begin to comprehend. But today, Lord, we want to experience your love. We want to be changed and transformed by your love. So, Lord, would you take my words? Would you take them away and and let your voice speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to love God with everything? With your whole heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength? Well, before we can even begin to address this question, we first have to ask, what is love and where does love come from? Is love a feeling? Is love a choice? Is love an emotion? Is love an experience? Is love an open door? Is love a a burning thing? Is love a battlefield? I'll let you catch up. Is love a chemical reaction inside of our bodies? Some would say yes. Well, if it is a chemical reaction inside of our bodies, how does it work and who put it there in the first place? When I come to this question, what is love... I turn to 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 19, where we're told that we love because he, that is God, first loved us. Well, how has God first loved us? Well, he created our world. He created us. Hands and feet and toes and ears and eyes. He created us with with love and ingenuity and intricacy. And then he put us on this amazing earth that he created just for us and for the creatures and for the single-celled organisms. He, He put us all together. I think that's love. But we rebelled against God and we corrupted everything. And now we're dealing with sin that we have introduced into this world. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But why? Why has God loved us so much? A sinner like me, maybe a sinner like you, why has God loved us so much? What has prompted him? What has motivated God to love us in such a passionate way? It's who he is. It's who he is. He's the author, the founder of love. And he loves us so much. He loves us so much, it's awkward. And what better place to go for love and awkwardness than the Song of Songs? But before we get into the text of the Song of Songs, let's just discuss a little bit what is the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is... A superlative. That means it's so super, it's like the king of kings, the lord of lords. It's the best of the best, the song of songs. It's so super that nobody ever preaches on it. That super, that super. Sometimes it's called the song of Solomon, which could mean it was written by Solomon, or it's written to or for Solomon, or it was written about Solomon. But it's super. It consists of some snapshots of a couple. Love songs and poems about this couple on their attraction, on their dating. You know, all the times they went to Starbucks and went out to eat. And and then their courtship, their marriage intimacy. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. Their conflicts, their romance and commitment unto death. But I should warn you, before you start reading the Bible and stuff, that Song of Songs is rated NC-17. However, it's poetic, so we often miss just how sexual it is in its nature. But I'll tell you what, when it's talking about figs, it's not talking about When it's talking about mountains, it's not talking about mountains. And when it's talking about gardens, it's certainly not talking about gardens. But I'm going to spill the beans. I'm going to spoil it all for you from from the get-go here. I believe that the Song of Songs should be interpreted in a number of ways, in a threefold manner. First, as the love between husband and and wife. The love between husband and wife. The love between husband and wife. You'll, you'll, you'll tell, I, I didn't say the love between boyfriend and girlfriend. I didn't say the love between boy toy and baby mama. The love between husband and wife. Celebrating the sexual relationship that God intended for 
marriage. God established marriage, including the physical union of a husband and wife. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. And this is one way to look at it through the lens that this is about the love between a husband and a wife. But also, it's the love between God and Israel. Celebrating, looking at, understanding the mutual love of God and Israel. The the rabbis were adamant that you should never interpret this in a secular way. That it's all about covenant relationship. And here the metaphor shows that the wife represents Israel and the husband represents God. Well, the early Christian thinkers took this interpretation and said, you know what? I think that we could interpret this also in in another way, that this might be the love between Jesus and the church. That it's an illustration of the mutual love of Jesus and his church. And the metaphor shows that the husband is Jesus and the wife is the church. That's kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. It's going to get a little bit more awkward. As we get closer and closer to the text of Song of Songs, chapter 4, we are barging into the honeymoon. We are actually located in the bridal chamber. Of all places, the bridal chamber. Awkward, right? Well, just wait till you understand what this might look like in this culture. At a wedding, after the whole ceremony and everything, the groom would then take his new bride to the wedding feast. And there they'd they'd celebrate before everybody. Everybody's there. And then the married couple would go to a side room or a side tent and they would consummate the marriage. Awkward. And then after... Everything happens. They would exit out of the tent or out of the room and uh, everyone would stand and applaud. (laughs) Double awkward. Well, here it is. Song of Songs, chapter 4. Remember, this is from the the man's perspective, from the husband who represents husband slash God slash Jesus speaking to his bride. Look at you. So beautiful, my dearest. Look at you. So beautiful. Now, if we are trying to read this in line with the Hebrew text, as the ancient rabbis would have us read this text, it might sound something more like, Dang, girl! Look at you! So fine! So beautiful! My dearest, look at you! Oh! So beautiful! Your eyes are doves? Behind the veil of your hair, your hair is like a flock of goats? As they stream down Mount Gilead. What? What in the world is going on here? Your eyes look like birds and your hair looks like goats. You won't find that on a Hallmark card. This definitely doesn't sound like a compliment. But, but actually... To tell a woman in the ancient Near East that her eyes were doves is probably the most, most meaningful thing you could say. What, what does that mean, your eyes are doves? Well, your eyes resemble the shape of a dove. Or your white eyeballs look like the white color of a dove's body. 
or your eyes look gentle and pure. And since it was understood that the eyes were the window to your soul or to your character, what this could say is that you have a pure character. You have a pure soul. Or your eyes flutter beautifully like the wings of a dove. Wow, that's special. That's amazing. That's beautiful. But goats? I mean, your hair looks like goats running down Mount Gilead. That sounds more like a bad hair day. But imagine, imagine the scene. It's, it's at dusk and, and there you are and across the valley you see the hillside. And the colors are glowing, all different types of colors. And, and then you see a whole flock of black goats descending the hill in unison. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking, incredibly captivating. It's like the, the black hair of the woman falling and rippling down from her braids. It's beautiful, incredibly captivating. Why has it got to be black hair? Why can't it be blonde, streaked, purple, turquoise, whatever? Well, goats in ancient Israel were commonly black or darkly colored. Stark contrast to the sheep, as we will see in verse 2, that were bright white. Verse 2 says, your teeth are like newly shorn ewes, so your teeth are like female sheep as they come up from the washing pool. That means that they're, they're clean, they're sparkling, fresh. All of them perfectly match. It means they're straight. Not one of them lacks its twin. They're all there. Her teeth are freshly washed and white, sparkling. In a Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, has often been compared to the ancient Near Eastern wasps' songs. Wasps' songs is more than a a tongue twister, W-A-S-F-S. Well, wasps' song was actually a song that a groom would sing to his wife at their wedding. And it would be a praise of her beauty from head to toe. So here we are. And we have the husband slash God slash Jesus picking up on every single little detail and saying to the wife, to to the Israel and to the church, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And we've just gone from the head to like halfway down the face. Hasn't even gotten good yet. Verse 3, like a crimson ribbon are your lips. When you smile, it is lovely, like a slice of pomegranate. Pomegranate is the curve of your face behind the veil of your hair. So her mouth, it's it's beautiful. It's got beautiful color and shape. Her temples, her cheeks are rosy with robust health. And the outside of her Face, her face looks like the outside of a pomegranate, shapely, curved, not like the inside. If the inside, you might need to get that checked out. (laughs) Verse four says, like David's tower is your neck, splendidly built. A thousand shields are hung upon it. All the weapons of the warriors. Well, what does this mean? Does it mean that she's got like a long neck? Yeah, maybe. 
Probably not like a brontosaurus long, but like long and symmetrical. Or it could mean that she's wearing a lot of jewelry, a lot of beautiful necklaces. And it wraps around her neck like shields on a tower. It was a common practice for soldiers to hang their shields on the towers or battlements or castles of those to whom they pledged allegiance. So she's wearing some beautiful necklaces. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like young deer, twins of a gazelle doe that graze among the lilies. Fawns are soft, lovable creatures, very cute. I mean, look at this guy. But they're also timid. And you have to approach them gently so as not to scare them away. So here the husband slash God slash Jesus is approaching his, his wife slash Israel slash the church in a gentle manner, in a gentle way. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. We've gone from the head to the neck and, and it just keeps, the refrain keeps going. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. Is this God saying that you're beautiful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse 6 says, Before the day breeze blows and the shadows flee. That means before the morning comes. So, all night long, I will be off to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. The mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense are metaphorical for her breasts. Myrrh and frankincense were expensive and are today expensive Perfumes. So this means that her hills, mountains are precious. You are utterly beautiful, my dearest. There is not a single flaw in you. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. Skip down to verse 9. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one strand of your necklace. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. And I love, love, love you. Now, it's one thing to interpret this as the love between husband and wife. Very romantic, very sentimental, beautiful. It's another to interpret this as the love between Israel and God. That's a little awkward. Or to understand this as love between Jesus and the church. That's, that's kind of strange. That's kind of weird. But God loves us so much that it is awkward. You know, Kenzie just sang a song during the offering. And we sing it all the time. How he loves. My favorite part of this song is the bridge where it talks about how heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. I love that. That speaks to the passion of God meeting earth. The passion that it took for him to send his son to come to the earth to redeem it. Passion, beauty, great love. But some Christians have taken offense to this. It's too vulgar. Not appropriate for church. So they've changed the words from sloppy wet kiss to an unforeseen kiss. Which I don't even know what an unforeseen kiss is, but I know what a sloppy wet kiss is. It's full of passion, it's full of beauty and love, but an unforeseen kiss just really doesn't cut it for me. 
if people are offended by the sloppy wet kiss, they're definitely going to be offended when it comes to the Song of Songs. Because the Song of Songs presents a whole lot more than a sloppy wet kiss. That's awkward. I mean, is it awkward to think about God loving us in an intimate way? Yeah, I think so. But I feel that in the Christian church, we have polarized God and human sexuality. That, that we have polarized God and, and intimacy. That we might not understand that God has created and given and blessed us, human beings, with the gift of sex to be enjoyed and celebrated within the context of marriage. And yes, we have squandered it. Yes, we have turned it into something decrepit. We have taken it and twisted it with things like pornography and abuse and a lot of other horrible things. We have really tweaked it pretty bad. But it was never intended to be like that. Something special, something important, something beautiful. And I think as Christians, if we, I'm not assuming that everybody's a Christian here today, but, but for those who are Christian, I think it's our goal to have God at the center of our lives, right? I mean, we want to have God at the center of our lives. Now, if God is at the center of our lives, that means God needs to be at the center of every little thing of our lives, every single piece of our lives. And that may mean for the married people, your sexual intimacy that's weird, right? Weird. It's normal for me to ask, how is God involved in your life? But to ask you married folks, how is God involved in your sex life? That's weird. It's uncomfortable. That's awkward, right? But should it be? I mean, it's awkward for me to come up here and talk about this. I'm like sweating, getting hot up here probably awkward for you to listen to this. But should it be? Should it be? It feels awkward maybe just because we're getting vulnerable. We're getting honest about things. Giving and receiving love takes vulnerability. I mean, imagine standing naked before God. Just naked before God. Would that be weird? Would that be awkward? Would you feel uncomfortable? Maybe. But just wait till he tells you, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, just the way you are. And I love, love, love you. That might change the whole game. It takes a lot of vulnerability to confess and receive love. Remember a few years back, I had just finished playing a show with my band and I was hanging out with Tara in the green room. We had been dating for almost a year and there we were in the green room that was oddly painted like bright red and we were sitting on a bright red couch and we had never kissed. And I wanted so bad to just plant one on her. Sloppy, wet kiss. Because I, I really loved her. Felt very passionate for her. But we had never kissed. But there we were. The moment was right. We 
were sitting on this bright orange couch in the green room that was oddly painted red. And I've got my arm around her. And I'm thinking about a line that one of my friends gave me. That He's like, dude, this works every time. It's fail-proof. So I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, all right, here we go. This is it. And I turn to her, and I look her square in the eyes, right in the face. And I say, with all the boldness and confidence and cocky arrogance, I say, what would you do if I kissed you right now? But it didn't come out like that. It came out, even though I tried to muster up all the courage, all the strength I could, it came out like, uh, what would you do if I, like, kissed you right now? Her expression said it all. Alarm, fear, confusion. And she responded, I think I'm going to be sick. But at least I tried, right? I made the attempt. I got vulnerable and tried my best. Needless to say, didn't get the kiss. But some years later, some years later, I attempted something much greater, much more challenging, at least for me, but more difficult. I remember pacing back and forth out in the hot sun, standing outside Rudy's Mexican restaurant. I was waiting for Tara's dad, Joe, to arrive. I had invited him to lunch, and he had no idea why I was inviting him to lunch. He had every idea why I was inviting him to lunch. I wanted to ask for his permission and his blessing to marry his daughter, his youngest daughter, his, his favorite daughter. <laughs> and he arrived, and we ordered our, a meal, and we sat down at the booth. And I remember getting up and going to the restroom, and I, I fell down to my knees, and I prayed there in the bathroom. I said, God, would you give me the words? Would you give me the, the courage and the boldness to say the things I need to say? And let your will be done. I come back and I sit down and we're just waiting for the food. And I I didn't know if I should pop the question before the food came or like during or after. So I just stalled and waited. We had small talk, small talk, small talk all the way through the meal. And then the moment came, I felt my heart just go for it. Do it. And I said, so... And I confess my undying love for Tara. And then I came around to it and I said, I wanted to ask for your permission and your blessing to marry Tara. And the whole time he's just kind of like stone face, arms crossed. But his question to me was, what's the plan? I thought, plan? What what are you talking about? We're going to get married, right? Happily ever after. What do you mean, the plan? He said, yeah, like the budget plan. Like, well, I didn't really think about that. I just wanted to get your permission and blessing to marry her. No, no, what's the plan? I don't know. And uh, he said, well, I would love to give you my blessing and my permission, but I feel like I need to see a plan first. 
okay. Little did I know, my now brother-in-law had some five years before gone to Joe to ask him to marry his oldest daughter named Heather. And apparently, Mason, my now brother-in-law, comes with like a briefcase full of papers, of documents that he was going to prove to Joe how he was going to financially provide and marry Heather. But Joe's question to Mason, as far as I know, was, do you love my daughter? That wasn't the question that I received. The question I received was, what's the plan? So I I think that there was no question in Joe's mind how much I loved Tara. But the question was, what's the plan? So we put a budget plan together and we were actually shocked that, wow, we're not in the red. We're in the black. We might be able to really do this. Gave it to Joe. He hardly even touched it, hardly even looked at it. He gave me the green light. He said, go ahead. Give you my permission and my blessing. When it comes to God, there's no question to how much he loves us. He loves us so much, it's awkward. But what's the plan? How do we respond to God? Well, I think we have to open up and unlatch and unlock ourselves to allow God to actually come in and love us. This is what happens in in verse 16 here of chapter 4. This is now the the wife slash Israel slash the church responding to him. Stir north wind and come south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its perfumes flow. Let my love come to his garden. Let him eat its luscious fruit. She's completely open, completely unlocked and vulnerable and ready for him. So what do we do? We open ourselves completely and then we pursue God completely. This is Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4a. It's a translation I've prepared. It's the response of the wife slash Israel slash church. And she says, Upon my bed at night I sought, I desired the one my soul, my spirit. My soul is uh, nefesh. You could also translate that as my spirit, my life, my body, my everything loves. I sought him, but I could not find him. Let me get up and circle about the city and the streets and open places. Let me seek the one my soul, my spirit, my life, my body, my everything loves. I searched for him, but I could not find him. The guards around the city found me and I asked them, Have you seen the one my soul, my spirit, my life, my body, my everything loves? It was a little while after I passed by them when I found the one my soul, my spirit, my life, my body, my everything loves. I grabbed him and I did not let him go. This is a complete role reversal. In our day and age, the guy pursues the girl. Same thing back then. The guy pursues the girl. But here we have the wife slash Israel slash church aggressively following, pursuing the husband slash God slash Jesus. Shocking, complete role reversal and change. We are to open ourselves up to God completely and completely pursue him 
with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. I want to go back to Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, our memory verse. And here this is talking about Jesus and what Jesus has said that that we should do. How we should love God. He instructs us to love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Greek is kardia. It can be understood as your heart, your inner life, or your intention. And now as Jesus is quoting Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he's drawing this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses, verse 5 where the corresponding Hebrew is levav or lev, which could mean your mind, your will, your heart, your decisions. Everything that makes you, you is your lev. Just think about it in this way. Whatever makes your heart beat, love God with it. If surfing makes your heart beat, love God with it. If knitting makes your heart beat, love God with it. If, if running makes your heart beat, love God with it. If, if getting coffee with people and talking about their problems makes your heart beat, love God with it. I want to welcome the band back up as we continue through these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and then with all your soul. What is a soul? Yeah, you, you can... Put someone on an operating table and cut them up and you can say, well, there's their kidney, there's their, their esophagus, there's their, their uh, pancreas. But where's the soul? You, you can't find the soul. In Greek, it's suke, your life, yourself, your breath of life. The corresponding Hebrew nefesh is your living being, your life, yourself, your person, your desire, your passion, your appetite, your emotion. Love God with it. And then love God with all your mind. Love God with all your mind. Dianoia, meaning your understanding, your intellect, and your thoughts. And this one's actually not in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. This is something that the Markan author shows Jesus adding to the list. So love God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and then lastly, with all your strength. Your iskus, your power, and your ability. The Hebrew is meod, with all your force, your might, your determination, your actions. That God has given us bodies, hands and feet to many of us. Some people don't have bodies that work. But whether it works or whether it doesn't work, love God with it. Serve God with it. Use it. Loving God matters most. It's more important than anything we could ever do. And you could say, well, Jeremy, it sounds like you are minimizing the whole black lives matter and the blue lives matter and the all lives matter by saying that love matters most, that loving God matters the most. That's precisely what I'm doing. That's precisely what I'm doing. Because you cannot adequately or authentically or passionately love other people. If you don't adequately and authentically and passionately love God, it cannot be done. 
We have to love God first and love God first with everything before we can even begin to understand what it means to love other people. How can I love people appropriately if I don't understand what love is and the love that God has for me? How can I respond to the love that people give me if I can't even respond to the love that God has given me? And then how can I respond perhaps to the hate that people might give to me? How do I respond in love if I don't know what true love is? I'll tell you what true love is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what matters. That's what matters most. God's great love for us. So love God with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind. With all your strength. And in doing that. And doing that to the best of your ability. It'll change your life. But I'll tell you what. You cannot love God. By just living your life. It can't be done. It's an active pursuit, a daily decision, an hourly, minute by minute, moment by moment, decision to pursue God and say yes to God and no to everything else. So let us pursue God and open our hearts completely to him. That today is a day to celebrate the love that God has for us. That God is continually shouting, screaming at us. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And I love, love, love you. I hope and I pray that you would open your heart to that today. There's a famous, a famous old hymn that I love. It's straight from the Psalms. It goes, as the deer panteth for the water... So my soul will thirst for thee. For you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship thee. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your great passionate love for us. The love that goes beyond borders. The love that loves us so deeply to the core that we could only begin to get a glimpse of. Lord, you have loved us to death. You have literally loved us to death and back. And God, as as we pull the covers back and let you into our hearts and lives, we ask for you to have your way. I pray if anyone's in here today, God, that wants to open up their heart to you for the first time, that they would pray, Jesus, would you come into my heart? I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again for me to come into my heart. Become my king of kings. I can't do it without you. May I follow you all the days of my life. So God, we love you. We love you. We love you. And we thank you for all that you have done for us. And so now, Lord, we respond to you. We give you glory and honor and praise. Would you receive this from the bottom of our hearts as a testimony of our great love for you? In Jesus' name, amen.